The power of the Grail compels me to destroy you, Chaos Scum. Come for the knights, stay for the ninja rats. This is the War Games Orchard. Welcome to the show. My name is Nathan Stone and I will be your host today. No Scott and GJ for this one. We just weren't able to get together this weekend. So I'm going to be batting a little bit of cleanup here. We've been going through the book sequentially so far, but this time I'm going to do a little bit of jumping around in the additional army section, just doing those ones that I can do without the other guys. I'm of course leaving some of the more juicy army lists, or at least the ones that I think Scott especially is going to enjoy talking about until I can get him back on, probably for the next part, which I am really hoping is the final part of this Storm of Chaos retrospective. Today's, though, is going to be those additional armies that I feel comfortable doing by myself, and the ones that I think otherwise we would just tack on to the end of one episode or another. So today we're going to be looking at three specific lists. We're going to be looking at the Errantry War list for Bretonia. We're going to be looking at the Skaven Clan Eshin list. And we are going to be looking at the High Elf Lothern Sea Guard Patrol Force list. I can never remember the actual name of that list. I think I call it something different each time. Like the rest of our episodes, we're going to skip the hobby and the news, and we're going to just dive straight into this. So we are skipping ahead a little bit to where we left, from where we left off last time. We had left off just after the Dwarf Slayer list, and so there is a section on doing campaign games as well as some scenarios we're going to leave those for now those ones are going to be a little bit more fun to talk about as a group i think so we're going to skip down to page 79 of storm of chaos where we get into additional armies which is a weird section when you think about it because this book is mostly additional armies so these are kind of additional additional armies these are all the forces that aren't really the main character forces but stuff that they wanted to include nonetheless. The picture here is from the Dark Elf 6th edition book. It's actually one of my favorite art pieces from 6th edition. It's my second favorite Dark Elf army book cover of all time. It's just a wonderful, very moody piece. I love all of the blues and purples in it. Very sinister, which I like a whole lot. Then we get into the various fluff pieces for each of these additional armies. These tell you what the factions that are kind of outside the main theater of war are up to. So the first bit is all about the Cult of Sunesh. We're going to skip that one for now, though. We're going to wait to do that when we do the actual Cult of Sunesh army list, which will probably be next episode. So we're going to start off with the New Errantry War. Now, I have been paraphrasing these fluff sections as we've gone through so far. I may read out the full fluff sections today just because they're not very long and they're always very good. So let's just do that. A New Errantry War. From Karl Franz's Conclave of Light, Messengers Rode South. 
crossing the Grey Mountains at Helmgart and entering Bretonia at Montfort. They made all speed to the capital of Couronne, to the court of King Leoncourt. A monarch ever aware of the threats to his nation, Lewin Leoncourt was not surprised to hear of the dire news that the emissaries brought. There were some amongst the dukes and knights who argued that the perils of the empire were not their concern, and that they should look to securing their own borders and defenses should the empire fall to the might of Archaon. A warrior king in the greatest traditions of Bretonia, Leoncourt chastised these counsellors and spoke of the Norse longships that had grown brave and ventured south to raid the coastal villages of Bretonia. He saw that if the empire were to succumb to the hordes of the north, Bretonia could not hope to hold out against the tide that would be unleashed upon its people. The Fey Enchantress too guided his decision, telling the court that it was the will of the Lady of Bretonia to take arms and aid their fellow men. Her divine mistress had come in dreams to many Grail Knights in the preceding nights, and even now they were gathering at Montfort for the march north. The king had no hesitation in declaring a new errantry war against the forces of Archaon, he would ride north himself at the head of his knights, and prove to the world that the strength of Bretonia had not lessened under his reign. Yet Bretonia is large, and its knights spread far and wide. And though many thousands answered the call to arms, it would take several months for the army to be readied for war. From north, south, east, and west, young knights eager to prove their honor and worth, and gain the rank of knight of the realm, descended onto towns and cities of Bretonia. The march north would be a long journey, the crossing of the Grey Mountains no small task in itself, and Leoncourt feared that despite his great efforts, he might arrive too late and find the empire ruined and in flames. A nice little setup for the forces of Bretonia in this book. A good acknowledgement of the fact that the Warhammer world is a very big place, and mustering armies takes a long time, especially... The way that Bretonia is set up with its feudal system, its knights spread across the length and breadth of quite a large realm. Now let's check out the army itself. This is a very short alternative force for the Bretonians. We start off with some unit restrictions for this army. Your lords are Bretonian lord. That's the one, the only. For heroes, you can take damsels and paladins. For core units, you have to take one plus knights errant unit. You can take knights of the realm, men-at-arms, and peasant bowmen. For special units, questing knights, mounted yeomen, and zero to one pegasus knights. And rare units, zero to one trebuchet and battle pilgrims. This list is entirely themed around the young impetuous errantry knights. And its special rule is all about making them even more impetuous than they already were. The first of their special rules is called Errantry War. Unsurprisingly, an Errantry War consists mainly of young Knights Errant. Knights Errant are the only units that count towards the minimum number of core units in the army. I.e., in a 2,000-point army, the army must include a minimum of three units of Knight Errant. Grail Knights will often join the ranks of young Knights Errant to give them some inspirational leadership, an ideal for them to aim for. Instead of taking a normal unit champion, Knights Errant may take a Grail Knight as their champion for 22 points. Their second special rule is Errantry Fervor. 
All knights errant units must take a standard bearer. All these standard bearers count as having the errantry banner and so may not choose a different magic banner. This is a really important special rule. Well, both of these are. Firstly, though you can't take units of Grail Knights, you can have Grail Knights lead your Knights Errant, which is really cool. I love that as a rule. But the second one, that every unit of Knights Errant count as having the Errantry banner, which is, I believe, about 20 points in itself. So you're you're saving some points there. But what this does is it gives all of your Knights Errant plus one strength on the charge, which is chef's kiss. Brilliant. Because that means your Knights are striking at strength six on the charge, which is nothing to dismiss. Now, for those of you not super familiar with the Bretonian 6th edition book, I'm going to give you the stats of Knights Errant. Knights Errant are movement 4, weapon skill 3, ballistic skill 3, strength 3, toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 3, 1 attack, and leadership 7. They are your basic humans, and of course they ride Bretonian warhorses. They are armed with a hand weapon, a lance, heavy armor, and shield, and their horses have barding. One knight must always be upgraded to a cavalier at no additional cost, so you do not pay for champions, which is quite nice. Otherwise, you pay 14 points for a standard bearer and 7 points for a musician. Normally, one unit could carry a magic banner worth up to 25 points. Of course, you will not be doing that in this list because you are just taking the errantry banner every single time, and you will like it, whether you want to or not. These guys are four points cheaper than the Knights of the Realm. The big difference between the Knights of the Realm and the Knights Errant is that Knights of the Realm have that weapon skill four. Usually I prefer Knights of the Realm. I think weapon skill four for these types of units is more than worth it. You really want to be hitting on that first turn with those lance attacks. And the higher your weapon skill, the better chance you have. So I usually prefer knights of the realm not that knights errant are terrible and 20 points per model not too bad and think of that grail knight in the front grail knights of course very very good for human cavalry about as good as it gets before you get into chaos stuff let's take a look at grail knights here so these are the guys that can lead your knights errant they are movement 4, weapon skill 5, ballistic skill 3, strength 4, toughness 3, 1 wound, initiative 5, 2 attacks, and leadership 8. And they are usually 38 points per model. So they are plus 22 points when you take them in, in the errantry war list. And I'm not sure if that's plus 22 points after you've paid for a knight errant making it 42 points or you just get them super cheap at plus 22 points because it doesn't feel like a upgrade it feels like you just buy a grail knight and i think that's what it means but i'm not 100 percent sure on that so you may want to check for yourself before you go loading up on these grail knights to lead your knight errant either way honestly i think they're kind of worth it a nice extra punch in that first rank you're probably going to have a character or two, you know, a paladin leading some regiments of errantry knights as well. So that first part of the lance uh, is going to be very, very strong for you. 
Their last special rule is glory or death. Knights errant are rather enthusiastic at the best of times, but during an errantry war, they take their rashness to a whole new level in their attempts to earn themselves honor and distinction. Knights errant suffer the following modifiers to any impetuous test that they take. This is cumulative with the minus two modifier due to the errantry banner itself. So one thing I did not mention about the errantry banner is it makes your impetuous tests all the harder. Now, this is something that is a little funny. It's a little hilarious when you read the impetuous rule. So this applies to all Knight Arant units. And it basically states that after all charges are made in any given turn, if you have a Knight Arant unit that is within charge distance of any enemy unit, they have to test on their leadership to try and restrain themselves, otherwise they must declare a charge on that unit. So it's a little bit like Frenzy, but with the hint of control. And I say hint of control because Knights Errant, as we've seen, are Leadership 7, which is a very, very mediocre leadership. However, all of your Knight Errant units have to have the Errantry Banner, which gives them minus 2, which takes them down to Leadership 5. Now, they also have the following modifiers through this glory or death rule. Minus one if there is one or more fear-causing enemies within charge range. Minus one if there are one or more terror-causing enemies within charge range. Minus one if there are <laughs> one or more dragons within charge range. If there are more than one dragons within charge range, if your knights are on... I don't know who's doing something wrong, you or your opponent. Minus one if there is one or more damsels within six inches. Parentheses, they like to show off in front of the ladies. And minus one if there are one or more enemy units within charge range that have a higher unit strength than the Knights Errant unit. In addition, Knights Errant must always pursue. They roll an extra d6 in pursuit and choose the highest three dice. Man, they are good at catching units that they break. But there's a lot of downside there. A lot of opportunity for your opponent to bait your knights. And they will be baited very, very easily. On the whole, I like this list a lot. I think it's really fun. I don't know that you're necessarily going to want to play this list all the time. If you were having a big Storm of Chaos campaign. I think the pseudo frenzy of impetuous would get old pretty quick but i think it would be great for one-off scenario games i'm probably going to want to mix it up if you're a bretonian player maybe play a standard bretonian list sometimes and a errantry war list other times but if you're all about going big or going home this list is for you there's a lot of fun stuff that you can do here and your knights are on for 20 points hit pretty hard quite frankly with that strength of four on the charge they have the bretonian lance formation which is a beautiful beautiful formation really good you can take more knights in this list than pretty much any other bretonian list because i mean they're as cheap as it gets right so you could do something with that i think it's really fun i'm glad to see bretonia getting an alternate list where they were a later book released in 6th edition, it was past that initial rush where Games Workshop was giving us alternate lists for 
all of these guys uh, and all of these factions. So good to see something for them there. All right. We are going to move on and we are going to find ourselves talking about the fleet of Lord Aislinn. So I'm going to read off this description as well. And here we will see the themes behind our High Elf alternate army. As promised by Lord Teclis, the High Elves sent what warriors they could spare from their battles with Malekith to aid the fight against Archaon. Teclis himself was accompanied by 300 of the finest elven warriors, including a number of the deadly swordmasters of Hoeth. It was not these fighters that would be the greatest boon to Karl Franz and his allies, though, but the dragon ships and hawk ships of the fleet of Lotharin. Led by the Sea Lord Aislinn, the flotilla of elven ships guarded the northern shores of the Empire against raiders from Norska. Though he arrived too late to stop the Norse from their landings at Erengrad, Lord Aislinn pursued his war with the Norse with not just efficiency, but ruthless enthusiasm. He dispatched some of his fleet to blockade Erengrad, and many hundreds of Norse were slain as they attempted to leave the sacked port and hundreds more left stranded on the shore and forced to make the long march south with Archaon. Not content to merely contain the longships of the marauders and prevent their attacks, Lord Aislinn adopted an offensive strategy, striking at the village of the Norskan coast. Aided by the sea rangers and the sea guard, his ship's companies wiped out settlements and slaughtered livestock, spreading confusion and fear along the coast. The terrified survivors of the Sea Lord's attacks carried tales of the white warriors, the Sea Ghosts, from village to village. These attacks were heralded by strange calmness on the Sea of Claws, and in the pre-dawn gloom, an eerie mist would rise from the waters that swathed the village in a glittering white blanket of cloud. Under this cover, the hawkships would glide silently onto the shores, their companies spreading out with well-trained precision and speed. Haunting, distant voices would be heard, echoing along the fjords, stirring the Norse from their sleep. As they emerged from their huts and lodges, weapons ready, they would be struck down from the mist by white-shafted arrows, their death cries sounding alongside the lilting calls of the sea spirits brought forth by the sea lord's mages. Volleys of bolts would scythe unerringly through the pale clouds, launched from the hawk ship's batteries to cut down any group of warriors that managed to assemble. Any who withstood this onslaught would rush forwards to confront their attackers, only to find themselves facing the glittering, disciplined ranks of the Sea Guard of Lothern. Those who survived the hail of arrows from massed bowmen would be mercilessly impaled upon the spear tips of Lord Aislinn's warriors. Once the defenders had fled or been slain, the village would be raised with alchemical fire, and the host would depart as silently and swiftly as it appeared. Now I can tell you from experience playing against this army, that is a dead-on description of what happens when you fight this, especially against a experienced high elf player. This army is the epitome of Trixie Elves, and if you don't enjoy Trixie Elves, you probably won't enjoy playing against this army. Shooting in Warhammer Fantasy generally isn't the way that you will necessarily win battles. It certainly can tip the scales for you, but it's usually some pivotal combats 
that bring victory or defeat. And the High Elf Sea Patrol is one of those where that illustration kind of breaks down a little bit because their shooting can really, really cripple you right off the bat. One of the most interesting things that happened during our Storm of Chaos campaign was I had a game against Patrick with my Hordes of Archaeon. He was playing his High Elf Sea Patrol, and his list was a brutal, brutal mash of all of the things I dislike the most about elves. Bolt throwers, heroes on great eagles, and just the hardest thing to come to grips with. He was able to do an obscene amount of damage between the shooting and the magic phase with this army. It was also an army that had a lot of movement tricks, because elves always have a lot of movement tricks, especially high elves and wood elves, and he used those in conjunction with this terrifying shooting to do some real damage. That was the game where my poor Krom got captured. We were playing with Mordheim rules for injuries after the battle, and one of the things that can happen in Mordheim is uh, one of your models can get captured, and that's just what I happened to roll up for Krom. And unfortunately, Krom could not be saved, and he was executed by these terrible, terrible high elves. So I have a lot of issues with this list, I guess is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> that being said, this is a very, very cool list. There's a bit more to this than there is to the Errantry War. The Errantry War didn't give us any new units or characters. It really just gave us a new way to play with Bretonia. The High Sea Patrol is a little bit different. We do get a few unique aspects to this army. The first thing that we encounter is our unit restrictions. For Lords, you can take 0 to 1 Sea Lord, which is a prince, so you use the prince's entry in the High Elf book, and Stormweavers as your other lord's choice, who are archmages. Heroes, you get a commodore, or commander in parentheses, or a mist mage, which is the normal High Elf mage. For core units, Lothern Seaguard. However, champions may choose up to 25 points in magic items, and one unit may be given a standard worth up to 25 points. That's pretty cool. The second core unit is the Ship's Company, who are a new unit that we will get to, but they do not count towards the minimum core unit choices. So you will be making up your list with a lot of Lothard Seaguard, which really limits your overall numbers. Lothern Seaguard, 15 points per model, very expensive. One of the things that I found interesting while playing Hordes of Archaeon against the High Elf Sea Patrol is that I outnumbered the elves probably two to one. I did take a lot of Marauders, and Marauders are dirt cheap, but I had a real good number of Chaos Warriors as well, and it was interesting to see that I got so many more units than he did. Not that it saved me. For special units, we have 2 plus Lothern Sea Rangers. These are Shadow Warriors for all intents and purposes. Finally, for rare units, we have Repeater Bolt Throwers. You know them, you love them. And the Murworm, who we will get to in just a moment. All right. The first thing we talk about is the Sea Lord Aislinn. 
The Sea Lord is a veteran of centuries of hit-and-run ship-to-shore warfare. He takes an almost cruel delight in using the sea mist summoned forth by the Lothern Sea Mages to make demoralizing attacks upon his enemies before they can form a coherent battle line. So, you get a Master of Miss rule. This is a new High Elf Honor, which is taken by the Sea Lord in his army. If you're having trouble remembering the 6th edition High Elf book, which I think a lot of Hell Elf players found pretty lackluster anyway, it honors were upgrades for characters like Lords that would give you some interesting special rules. A lot of books had something like that for their Lord characters in 6th edition. It's nice that it is no additional cost. And here's what it does. Immediately after both armies have been fully deployed, including scouts, each unit of Lothern Seaguard, Lothern Sea Rangers, and Repeater Bolt Throwers get a special round of shooting. During this round of shooting, the shooters ignore all negative to hit modifiers and may target any enemy unit on the table regardless of range, line of sight, and proximity to friendly troops although they may not single out characters within a regiment of like-sized models. In addition, Aislin rules his vessels with an iron hand and is automatically the army general. If the army contains the Sea Lord, it is not subject to the intrigue at court special rules. This is a brutally powerful suite of rules. Firstly, you don't have to worry about the High Elves infighting, making a little mage into your army general when you don't want him to be. But having a full round of shooting that ignores all negative modifiers and line of sight, oh boy, it basically allows you to neuter any one unit on the battlefield if you're going to focus your fire. That's what Patrick did against me, and he managed to kill all the crew of my Hell Cannon, which was a really good play on his part, because firstly, he didn't have a Hell Cannon, which could eat up all of his Elven infantry units, but he sent it into a rampage through my backlines, which was really unfortunate for a number of my units. A really good play on his part. And there's many similar ways that you could use that to focus down a particularly nasty unit, neuter something that you would otherwise find really hard to deal with. Now let's talk a little bit about the special units that we see in the High Elf Sea Patrol. The Murworm is our first one. It is 200 points. The Mages of Lothern are able to summon forth and bind the Beasts of the Deep, imposing their will upon the creature's primitive minds. The Murworm is a rare example of such a beast that is capable of fighting on land, and this distant relation, some would say ancestor, of the dragons of Kaldor is a truly deadly and terrifying foe. Now, the Murworm doesn't quite have dragon stats, though it isn't unimpressive. It's movement 6, weapon skill 6, strength 5, toughness 5, 5 wounds, initiative 3, 5 attacks, and leadership 7. It has the special rules Terror, Large Target, Scaly Skin 3+, and Regenerate. It has Aquatic, Murworms suffer no movement penalties for moving through water-based terrain features. Instead, their movement is increased to 10, and they do not count as a large target when in the water. So that's kind of nice. I don't know many players who play with big water features, but you might get some use out of that. 
Summoned from the deep is his other special rule. You may take as many merworms as you have stormweavers and mist mages in the army, subject to the restrictions of ra on rare units. Each merworm is bound to a specific mage before deployment. Note this on your army list. In any turn in which a merworm fails to roll regenerate, it must make a leadership test using the leadership of the mage that bound it. If the test is failed, roll on the monster reaction table on page 105 of the Warhammer rulebook. Regard result 5 and 6 as the creature acting really dumb rather than guarding its fallen rider. Should the mage be slain, the merworm must test on its own leadership each turn, and if it fails, the effect of the roll on the monster reaction table will last until the end of the game. In the game that I played, the merworm was not Patrick's top performer, certainly not an MVP. I ended up breaking it and riding it down with, I believe, my Chaos Knights, though that was one of the few bright spots in the battle for me. I still quite like the merworm, honestly. I think Toughness 5 with Scaly Skin 3 plus and Regenerate is just absolutely brutal. Weapon Skill 6 and 5 attacks for a monster isn't bad. And 200 points for the whole thing seems pretty reasonable to me, to be honest. I do like him. Did really like the Forge World model that we got. Though I think that Forge World model came around much later than the Storm of Chaos. I feel like that was around 2008-2009 when the Forge World Merworm came out. I'm not sure if they still offer it, but it is a really fun model. The second special unit is the Ship's Company. This is our other core choice for the Sea Patrol. And these guys are interesting. The crew of Aislinn's ships are seasoned mariners and often accompany the Sea Guard and Sea Rangers ashore when numbers are lacking. They are 9 points per model, and they are Movement 5, Weapon Skill 4, Ballistic Skill 4, Strength 3, Toughness 3, 1 Wound, Initiative 5, 1 Attack, and Leadership 8. They are armed with a Hand Weapon and a Shield. Any unit may be equipped with Light Armor for 1 point per model. Any unit may be equipped with Spears for 1 point per model. Any unit may be equipped with Bows for 2 points per model. Upgrade 1 Mariner to a Musician for 6 points. Upgrade one Mariner to a champion for 12 points. This is almost like the Empire Militia for High Elves. You can do pretty much anything you want with them. You can make them basically into Lothern Seaguard. I don't know why you would do that necessarily, but you could do it. I don't mind these guys with bows for 11 points, just as a backfield cheaper alternative to... The Lothern Seaguard, that saves you four points per model, which is pretty significant, especially when you're looking at regiments of, you know, 20. They're an odd choice for sure, because they don't really do much at nine points per model. I think you're going to want to give them something, either the light armor or the spears or bows. I don't think you'd ever want to give them all of those things. I can't really see much of a use beyond making them into bowmen at 11 points because otherwise they're just kind of worse spearmen and your Lothern Seaguard you're, you're probably worth just spending the extra points at that point yeah, it's a tough one it's a tough one though it is nice that there is a choice that isn't 15 point Seaguard I guess is what I will say about the ship's company I think the only thing that disappoints me about this High Elf Sea Patrol list is that they didn't go 
back to the roots of naval combat in Warhammer Fantasy to make this list. And what I mean by that is Man of War. In Man of War, the ship to ship fighting was done by war dancers. This was back when high elves and wood elves had access to war dancers. And wouldn't it have been cool to have that throwback unit in here? So naval war dancers, I guess that would have seemed silly at the time. And most people, I think, may have been like, why would this be here? But it would have been a great callback. I still think high elves should have had war dancers as well and had different dances from the wood elves. I thought that would have been an interesting way to link the two cultures, but also show their differences. Either way, this is a very fun, effective list. I think it's the kind of thing that you want to be an experienced general with high elves before you run it. And it's the kind of list that I think is prone to maybe making for less fun games. I still had a blast with Patrick, but there are some of those frustrating aspects to it that certain armies just don't have great answers for, which is... <laughs> To say that if you're not fast enough, if you don't have that shooting or that magic to to bring some things down, it's it's a hard one to to deal with in in certain respects. But those Trixie elves, they get me every time. So please take with what I say with a grain of salt. The final list we're going to be looking at today is the Clan Eshin army list. Here is their lore for Storm of Chaos. Whilst the warbands marched southward under Archaon's banner, and Krom's army crossed the world's edge mountains, another force was busy at work, unseen by any others, in the tunnels and the catacombs that riddle the Ulrichsburg. The time-worn defenses were mysteriously being dismantled. Watchmen and wardens were disappearing in greater numbers, and rumors began to spread telling of dark, furred shapes skittering through the shadows. Well-respected and time-honored patrolmen and guards reported seeing man-sized rats in the sewers and crypts only to be laughed at by their younger, more cynical comrades. Most of those comrades would not survive to regret their naive scoffing. Tales abounded of scratching noises in the dead of night, of echoing chitters from the depths and newly dug tunnels appearing overnight. Above in the rambling warren of alleys and dens of Midnheim, the rats were growing fat and brave, gathering in such numbers that even the packs of semi-feral dogs that roamed the streets were put to flight and sent cowering to the better respected and patrolled areas of the city. Unaware of the growing peril below their feet, the rulers of Middenheim prepared their defenses to face the tide of chaos worshippers marching upon their city across Midland. Little did they know that the cannons and mortars, the bolt palisades and chain launchers, would not avail them against their closest foe. Oh, Skaven, always up to mischief. This is, I think, the oddest list in this book. And I say that because you kind of have to play spot the difference between this Skaven Clan Eshin force and the one in the Skaven rulebook. Because there is a Clan Eshin alternate army that was already very much a thing. And a lot of it is the exact same in the Storm of Chaos book as it is in the Skaven book. I think 
personally that Games Workshop, the writers might have wanted another go at it because there are some interesting differences between the two and we'll point those out as we go through. The very first difference is that the Clan Eshin army in the Skaven book doesn't have army-wide special rules. They get some alternate units and they have some restrictions but they don't have army-wide rules. This list gives us some. The first one is the Eshin army is principally employed to collapse command structures and hence gets 100 victory points for each enemy character killed in addition to the usual bonuses. That's pretty cool. The elite Eshin sorcerers have perfected their abilities to teleport their brethren into the desired place on the battlefield. When casting Skitterleap, the teleported model may even be placed in base contact with an enemy model that is not fleeing and counts as pursuing into fresh enemy models. That is a very, very neat rule. You can take the upcoming Master Assassin, the Lord level Skaven Assassin that we'll talk about in just a moment, and you can teleport him right into the enemy general's face. I like that a lot. The next one is called Under the Cover of Darkness. So great is Clan Eshin's training in the art of stealth that they are fully capable of launching a successful assault in the dead of night. Often the first sign of their presence is when their prey begin to die. Any Clan Eshin army which consists entirely of skirmishers and character models may impose the following rule. At the start of each game turn, roll an artillery dice and multiply the result by three to find out how far in inches the troops can see through the darkness. If you roll a misfire, then the moon is bright enough for normal warfare for that game turn. You cannot shoot, charge, or cast spells at targets you cannot see. So this is a very random, but potentially very good way to avoid enemy shooting. Especially if you're playing against High Elves or Empire, one of the armies that can really punish you at long range. Now, you do have to have a army that consists entirely of skirmishers and character models, which is a lot to ask, certainly. But think of the artillery dice for a moment. You can have a two on the artillery dice, and then everyone can see six inches. So that is uh, something that could really help or hamper you. It's one of those fun, weird, random Skaven rules. And I like it a whole lot for this army. Finally, an army of 1,999 points or less, and with no Eshin sorcerers, must include a chieftain as its army general. Now we get on to the army list itself. And this is not appreciably different from the Eshin army list that you may be familiar with from the 6th edition book. The Lord is the Master Assassin which is the same as the book list. However, the book list gives you Grey Seers as an option. This list does not. For heroes, we have the Chieftain, the Assassin, and the Eshin Sorcerers. That is the same between books. For core units, we have Night Runners. They are the mainstay unit. Clan Rats, who are not a mainstay unit. And mainstay in this case means that you can use them to fill up those compulsory choices. Clan Rat Slaves, 0 to 1 Storm Vermin, 0 to 1 Rat Swarms. And if you upgrade those to Plague Rats, they count as a special choice. 
These are all the same as in the Skaven book. For special units, we have Gutter Runners, Giant Rats, and Warplock Jezails. The Jezails have moved from the rare units in the 6th edition Skaven book to special in SOC. And finally, rare units, we have the Eshin Triad, which is a fresh new unit to Storm of Chaos. Plague Monks, Plague Sensor Bearers, Poison Wind Globideers, and Dogs of War. The Eshin Triad replaces Rat Ogres from the rare list in the Skaven book. Also gone are Poison Wind Globideers, who were a rare unit in the Skaven book, and Warp Lightning Cannons. So a lot of rare units gone there. Now to the special units themselves. The first one up is our Lord level character, our Master Assassin. He is fairly impressive stat-wise with movement 7, weapon skill 8, ballistic skill 6, strength 4, toughness 4, 3 wounds, initiative 10, 4 attacks, and leadership 8. He weighs in at 215 points per model. He is armed with two hand weapons and throwing stars. And he may choose magical items from the common and skaven magic item list with a maximum total value of 100 points. And may be equipped with smoke bombs for 20 points. His special rules are Poisoned Attacks, Scout, and Hidden. And his unique special rule is Sensei. The Master Assassin may be the Army General. However, he can only pass on his leadership value to other units if he is not hidden. This is a big change from the way he appeared in the Skaven book, which is almost identical. Except that one had a very funny special rule saying that you could use his leadership value to all units of night runners and gutter runners within 12, but you had to get your opponent to look away if he was hidden so that he wouldn't know what unit he was hiding in. It was very silly, which I think is why they simply got rid of it for the Master Assassin in SOC. Next up is the Eshin Sorcerer. So this is the other character that was present in the Skaven book. And he is a hero level wizard character, movement 6, weapon skill 4, ballistic skill 4, strength 3, toughness 3, 2 wounds, initiative 5, 1 attacks, and leadership 7 for 75 points. Honestly, for a wizard in 6th edition, that's a pretty good stat line. I don't hate that. Uh, he has two hand weapons at throwing stars. Also find pretty amusing. He is a level 1 wizard. He always knows the skitter leap spell, so you will always have that if you want it. And he may choose magic items from the common and skaven magic item list to a maximum of 50 points. And he may be upgraded to a level 2 wizard at the cost of 15 points. Funnily enough, though, he does not gain another spell or warp stone chunk. Finally, he may be equipped with smoke bombs for 20 points. Special rules are poisoned attacks and scout. This is a weird one because your magic is so limited. You know, you can have anything you want as long as it's skitter leap. With this army. And I'm a big fan of Skitter Leap. And of course this army has those tricks that you can play with Skitter Leap. To Skitter Leap right into combat. It would have been nice to maybe have a little bit more versatility with your mages. But you know. I guess that's really not the theme of this army. Finally we have the Eshin Triad. At 210 points per team. This is a unit of three Skaven Assassins. They do not count as characters, they cannot buy magic items, and to all intents and purposes form a separate skirmishing unit. 
which none of them can leave under any circumstances. They are a movement 6, weapon skill 6, ballistic skill 5, strength 4, toughness 4, 2 wounds, initiative 8, 3 attacks, and leadership 8. What you have here is a small unit of hero level characters. That's kind of neat. They are armed with the ubiquitous two hand weapons and throwing stars, and they may be equipped with smoke bombs for 30 points. They have poisoned attacks, scout, and skirmish. They're a fun little war machine hunting group. 210 points is an awful lot to pay. <laughs> I don't know how much you're going to get out of this unit. It's going to be a big target for your enemy. It's not going to be the easiest unit to take out because they're skirmishers, but you're still going to have to be pretty careful with them. All in all, I think this is a better list than the Clan Eshin list in the 6th edition book. That 6th edition book has more units that it can take, especially in the rare unit choices. This one is slightly more themed and makes a little bit more sense as a assassination force, something to, to cut the head off of the enemy general. This is another army that I think you're going to want to have some good knowledge of the game, probably be a more experienced player to get the full potential out of this one, really understand how skirmishing works. But I think you'd have a lot of fun with it, especially if you're going to set up some special scenarios, maybe a clan Eschen force trying to assassinate Volton on his way to Mindenheim. Be really, really fun and really funny. That's going to do it for our look at these three army lists. Next time, hopefully we will get to do the other two additional armies, which is the Cult of Slanesh and the Army of Sylvania. Those are very in-depth. I think we could do a whole episode on those two, but then that will be basically it. I think maybe we will try and quickly tack on the campaign stuff and the scenario stuff to our next episode. So hopefully that will be the last episode of Storm of Chaos. Not that I haven't been having a good time, but sometimes you just want to talk about other things. And this has been quite an undertaking, way more than I thought when we started. This is part five, and I originally thought this was going to be a two-parter because I was very foolish and young back then. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this one. Next one should be out next week, hopefully. <laughs> and until next time, thanks for listening, and have a great week. Thanks for listening to the War Games Orchard. If you enjoy the show, why not join us on Patreon? There you'll gain access to all of our bonus content for any level of donation. It's a great way to help us keep going and enjoy extra Orchard content. If Patreon's not your thing, please consider giving us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice and sharing this show with friends. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook at The Warhammer Orchard and The War Games Orchard, or by email at wargamesorchard at gmail.com.